Hey, this is Jordan Rothline from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. London's Ben UFO started out on pirate radio station Sub-FM in 2007, playing dubstep along friends, producers, and DJs Pangea and Pearson Sound. After being sent new music every week, the trio started the Hessel Audio label that same year, through which they joined the dots of the UK underground between house, techno, jungle, and drum and bass, as the global dubstep scene was exploding. Since then, Ben has graduated to a fortnightly show on the flagship London radio station Rinse FM and a near-constant touring schedule. In this episode of Couch Wisdom, recorded at the 2014 Red Bull Music Academy in Tokyo, he touched on the label's early days, making the weird accessible, and outsider house. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. On the couch next to me, it's Ben UFO. Hello. I think it's good that we're starting the talk today by the fact that we all we all got to see you play last night. Uh, so at least some people have a sense of what Ben's about as a DJ and it's not just all a theoretical talk about playing records. Um, but even though last night was a success and it, everyone really enjoyed themselves, I think it's quite interesting that your very start of your story, uh, success was born of a slight f- failure. Do you mind telling us about how you started DJing and what the story behind that was? So I'd been DJing for quite a long time. Uh, went to university, met a couple of people there that I started DJing with and we decided to try and get a radio show. Uh, radio is something that I've done pretty much every week for the past seven years. But uh, yeah, we were turned down for the first show that we applied to, which was uh, just like a tiny student union radio station who more or less told us that what we were doing was completely irrelevant to anything that they were interested in. Uh so we kind of just applied to an internet station instead and started broadcasting from our bedrooms. And that, that was the kind of the beginning of everything for us. And to give a bit of context for those who aren't from the UK, um, where were you all at the time and how did you all come together musically? Uh, so I, I grew up in London. Uh, all of us uh, met properly in, uh, in Leeds where we went to university. Uh, I met David Pearson Sound. Uh, in the queue for Ford in London, uh, transpired that he was going to come up to the same university as me. So we got talking and he started sending me some of his first uh, tracks, which were pretty bad. And I ended up living with Kev in second year. He was the only person that I knew in Leeds that had a pair of turntables, uh, which were set up on the floor uh, of his room. So we'd like spend a couple of hours mixing some of like terrible... Well, alternately terrible and all right drum and bass records. He played the bad ones. Uh, like kneeling on the floor next to his bed. It was quite strange. Uh, we kind of discovered dubstep at like a r- relatively similar time. And uh, yeah, started going out to nights together. And that was that. So I find it interesting that your relationship with the dubstep scene and music, um, you're from London, but you were staying in Leeds at the time. For the sake of context, uh, the dubstep scene and sound in the UK was born of a very small pool of people, uh, producers and DJs and club promoters. Very few venues would play it and it was a very narrow kind of geography as a sound in South London. 
How did you experience that early on by being a London expat in Leeds, as it were? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you're right. It was like a, it was a really hyper-specific sound that initially was only really played in like a few rooms around London, uh, gradually spread a little bit. Uh, uh, Bristol, Leeds was one of the other cities that it spread to relatively quickly. But uh, yeah, I mean, we, we very much felt like outsiders not being in London, like I would come back home, go to as many nights as possible uh, and try and meet people. But it still felt like we weren't really in the heart of what was going on. Uh, and certainly when we started DJing, we were just coming at it from the perspective of fans and people that really liked the music and wanted to play it. There was no sort of desire to get involved because we didn't feel like that was possible really. It was something that was happening somewhere else. So, I mean, we started to put nights on, we started doing this radio show, but it wasn't a scene that we were sort of involved with. We weren't kind of in the middle of it. We were somewhere parallel. And I find it interesting that your first radio show was named after a lofa tune, uh, Ruffage. So it's all very um, slavish uh, towards the dubstep sound. But interestingly, once you started the radio show, people started sending in tracks. Uh, could you explain a little bit about the relationship between your listeners and the radio show in Leeds once these tracks started to roll in? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, like I said, we were very much just kind of fans of this music. So when people started to send us music that they were writing for the show, it, it sort of made me feel as though there were these little pockets of people around the world that felt the same way that we did. Uh, and that was kind of the first idea um, that, that was the first thing that kind of gave me an idea that what we were doing might be slightly broader um, than I thought might have like more of a, a relevance to other people than I thought. I think because we felt slightly outside of the scene at the time, we also felt able to draw from a slightly wider pool of music, uh, which maybe made what we were doing relevant to uh, more people. I think that's probably why we developed the regular core of listeners that we did and I think that's why those listeners started sending us music to play on the show. And once this music started to roll in uh, I'm interested in how people talk about the Hessel sound and the Ruffage sound and once uh, these tracks started getting sent in did you start to see patterns of what sort of music was coming in that was influenced by dubstep that you thought hang on this is something completely new that that we should pick up on? Uh, I mean, like, do people in the room kind of know the records that we've released? I don't really know how to answer that question until I kind of know whether or not people have heard the tracks. Uh, like, the stuff that we were playing on the radio was, at the time was kind of falling between dubstep, garage, and uh, stuff that was maybe a bit housier and, like, faster techno that we were hearing that was fitting in with that sound. Uh, and the music that our listeners were sending in was very much informed by that. I think we were being sent quite a lot of predominantly garage-influenced music, which wasn't particularly big in London at the time. Uh, and the first record that we put out is a really good example of that. So yeah, that's uh, a TRG Put You Down, which was the first release on Hessel Audio, uh, which is the label that you started with David and Kev, who are Pearson Sound and Pangea. Uh, Pearson Sound then was a Ramadan man uh, early on. Um, a lot of what gets discussed uh, with Hessel Audio as it started as a sound was that it was a label born of a very interesting time in dubstep and what UK dance music and generally 
uh, was doing that was uh, the start of the UK funky sound. Uh, house music was starting to come into what dubstep was doing. And 2007 was also the year that dubstep started getting put on festival stages. So in terms of UK music, uh, dubstep was at a real crossroads. How do you think Hessel kind of tackled that early on? Uh, I mean, it was very much born of its time. Like you said, 2007, you know, it was a time that where a lot of different stuff was happening. The music was kind of exploding in a way that it hadn't before. Uh, the sound was changing. It was broadening, getting more festival friendly, like you said. But I think, like, most, most importantly, that, like, there was just a lot of momentum behind it. I mean, if, if you're trying to get involved with a scene that is expanding, it's obviously going to be a little bit easier. There's going to be infrastructure there to help you out. For us, we were lucky enough to find a distributor that was willing to work with, like, 19-year-olds that had no idea what they were doing. Like, we wrote a sort of really innocent-sounding letter, I think, to ST Holdings, who distributed us for a long time, uh, who recently closed. Uh, it was David that took the initiative to do that. But, uh, yeah, they, they just guided us through the whole process, uh, held our hand through the whole thing, which is something that I think wouldn't happen if you were trying to get involved in something that was already established, already massive, already slightly saturated. So, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't that we were so much tackling what was going on. Uh, we were just fans that wanted to get involved and it so happened that we were in the right place to do it because there was an infrastructure in place to help us. And once uh, the label started to pick up a little bit of momentum as well, um, what was like the chronology of you being in Leeds? Because everybody thinks of dubstep as London and Bristol in the UK as the big cities. But for the sake of the context of dubstep and what you were doing in the kind of diaspora of UK dance music what was the Leeds scene like and how did you feel that influenced what you were doing? Uh, I mean the Leeds scene was tiny uh, the way that it started was in back rooms of bigger raves at a place called the West Indian Centre uh, which was sort of a big cultural centre in um, Chapel Town and uh, you'd have sort of either uh, bigger drum and bass acts or dub reggae sound systems in the main room, dubstep in the back room. I mean, most importantly, both sound systems, like in the main room and in the second room, would be absolutely amazing. So you could be confident that you could go and see this music that was produced in a hyper-specific way uh, and really feel it the way that it was designed to be felt. So, I mean, from that perspective, it was a really great place to go out and listen to the music. But the sort of core community of listeners and fans wasn't quite there till slightly later. I think the fact that the music was being played in sort of big dub reggae back rooms uh, gave the nights a slightly different feel as well. In London, most of the places to listen to this music would be sort of small basement clubs like Plastic People, uh, places like Mass, Third Base, uh, which were all like small capacity one-room venues. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it definitely did have a different feel and that's probably impacted on what we've done. And uh, in terms of you DJing as well, again, like the dynamic with Hessel, um, you're like the non-producer uh, in the trio. You shouldn't, <laughs> shouldn't be embarrassed by that at all. Like, um, once you started playing this music out on the radio, uh, I always really liked, I know you're a fan of, um, of Bailey, yeah. uh, the DJ on, a, on One Extra. And uh, he has this uh, running phrase that I really like. He's like, he blocks out what people think is cool. Um, once dubstep started to get cool, as it were, and you were DJing 
uh, the Hessel Records out. How do you feel the relationship changed as a DJ between the radio and the club at this point? Uh, it's a difficult thing to uh, for me to put my finger on because I've never been cool uh, particularly. <laughs> um, but I think like. I mean, for me, like, I mean, like radio was always the way that I accessed this music first and foremost, so it was always kind of a solitary thing, I suppose. I didn't start to play out until considerably later, like probably around 2006, seven. Uh, and the places that I was playing were tiny spots for friends. Uh, there was a place in London that I think David talked about in his lecture a few years ago called uh, The Red Star in Camberwell, which was a sort of small... A community event in Camberwell that would happen on Thursday evenings and it would basically be like friends DJing for each other. Um, so, that, I mean, those were my initial experiences of DJing when the label started to pick up and we started to get busier. Uh, that was then like something I had to come to terms with, I guess. Like I had to figure out sort of what it actually was that I wanted to present to people. I mean, like you said, I'm the only one of the three that doesn't produce DJing in and of itself is quite a sort of niche specific thing so it seems like a strange thing to specialize in but I do seem to be able to endlessly pick over what I do and sort of overanalyze it constantly. I think it, I think it works to your benefit. Um, a lot of what gets talked about in UK dance music is the idea of it being a continuum. Uh, that one genre leads directly into another in some kind of historical lineage and things have a domino effect uh, and what I find interesting is how you managed to frame these tracks in such a way that it was speaking to what was happening at the time but like the the DJ Bailey idea trying to block out what's cool. Um, I'm curious about what you think about this idea of UK dance music and your place within it uh, being part of a lineage of something. Uh, I mean, like both of the tracks that we've played so far uh, have been quite sort of explicitly backward-looking. I think uh, even if they even if they sound contemporary, uh, like the TRG tune was really explicitly referencing two-step tracks and kind of records by people like Horsepower, Artwork, and LB. David's tune is obviously completely enthralled to sort of classic uh, jungle records. Um, use of the breakbeat, the like, just kind of constant little um, references to different periods of UK dance music, like you said. Um, we've never wanted to release anything that is uh, sort of wholly nostalgic for something else. Uh, so I hope that both of those records um, sound like a slightly more modern spin on those two things. I mean, they're both like getting on a bit now, both of those two tracks but hopefully they don't sound like fully retro, if that makes sense. Um, all of us are really interested in the history of UK music, so I think that it does have a really big impact on the music that we release. Um, like you said, there's this idea of the hardcore continuum tracing through UK music from the late 80s to now, through Acid House, um, you know, all of the various brands of Garage, Jungle, uh, up to Dubstep and Grime. Uh, it's a little bit, the lines are a little bit more blurred now. Uh, it's slightly less clear what's going on. Um, and I think 
that's actually reflected in the music that we're releasing at the moment. Uh, the music we're releasing now, uh, I don't think is as explicitly backward looking. Um, I don't exactly know where it fits in, uh, but that's something that I'm quite interested in. I quite like the idea of releasing music that's slightly alien, that no one can quite place, but that still fits within existing dance music conventions. I think the value in looking at an idea like the Hardcore Continuum is that it gives you an idea of what kinds of conventions of the dance floor might be worth holding on to, and it might also give you an idea of how it might be fun to subvert them, if that's something that interests you. Yeah, I mean, it does like interest us, us, that's why we're talking about it. Yeah. But what When you um, are talking about... Uh, what you'd like to hold on to and what you'd like to subvert. Um, as a DJ, what would you like to do in those regards? What do you think is possible to do? I mean, it's definitely not a thing that like everyone is fully interested in doing because there is so much music that fits very, very comfortably within uh, existing sort of parameters of genre and stuff like that. I'm not particularly interested in playing sets or releasing music that does fall really comfortably within those parameters. And I think it comes from our perspective as kind of outsiders to the various scenes that we've been involved with. Um, like you said, being in Leeds when dubstep was going on, coming into DJing house and techno with a background that's more sort of, you know, garage and dubstep and blah, blah, blah. So we've always, I think we've always felt the freedom to sort of play around with uh, whatever genres we might be interested in at the time. Because uh, we've not really felt, I don't think we've really felt the pressure to live up to the expectations of genre because we've never really been welcomed into any. Yeah, I, th I hope that answers the question. No, no, it's a, it's a difficult kind of idea. I think I should probably have prefaced that a little bit better. When I say this idea of a, a hardcore continuum, uh, I think one of the preconceptions of it now is that UK dance music lives in a bubble um, and that it only feeds into and of itself. When actually there's, it was born of US house and techno music and essentially, if I can, if I can boil down quite a complicated idea, is how... Uh, the UK music diaspora managed to involve themselves in it. So what I quite like the idea of you challenging is in how you managed to fold in uh, the traditions of US house and techno with things like garage and grime and even, even baseline kind of stuff, like the latter kind of things. Um, within that idea of what you'd like to subvert and what you'd like to change, um, when it comes to playing music on the radio and playing music on the dance floor. Do you think there is a disparity between the two? Uh, possibly. Uh, I guess to go back to what you were saying about the hardcore continuum, I think these ideas are super useful in that uh, they do allow you to draw a line through eras and pick out patterns and things like that. But with ideas like that that are essentially really broad generalizations, um, generalizations that are made because they're useful, but you know they are still generalizations, so there are still tons of exceptions to these ideas and tons of little, you know, tiny little 
flaws within the idea. And I find those flaws quite interesting. So if you broadly sum up US house and techno in a certain way, I'm quite interested in finding the people that don't comfortably fit within those parameters and, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what, why it is that they've managed to make it work despite the fact that they're kind of operating at a tangent to what everyone thinks they should be doing. I'm always interested in finding UK producers that seem to pull in their influences from, you know, from the States or from somewhere else because, like you said, there is this idea that somehow UK music exists in a bubble and UK producers only look to other UK producers for their inspiration and their ideas. And we know that's not true. I mean, when we listen to Garage Records, you can pick out tons of ideas from US rap and R&B and all that kind of stuff. But for the simplicity of the idea of this continuum, you know, it makes sense just to kind of lock it into place. So yeah, I mean, I think that that does inform my ideas about what I'd like to do as a DJ and what I'd quite like to do with with the label. I'm quite interested in trying to be one of those people that can find slightly different ways of doing things and that can subvert the kind of uh, established narratives around the music that we're involved with. I think another thing that's really interesting about that uh, when you say trying to like pull in like a bank of knowledge as a DJ, I think one of the interesting things about this idea of a continuum is that the idea of being eclectic and what that means as a DJ. And I don't know uh, what other people think of this, but I think it's quite strange how the word eclectic as a DJ automatically assumes uh, you're educated about music, that you have a, a wealth of knowledge about various things, and that implies that you're inherently good at what you do. And I think as a DJ, this is quite an interesting like a dichotomy because when people say eclectic, you can say uh, eclectic as knowledgeable, but a, a DJ in a student union bar can be eclectic. It doesn't imply a quality. And I wonder what you think about the relationship between eclecticism and specialising. Um. So, uh, like, again, it's quite complicated. I think uh, we were having a conversation about this yesterday. I think uh, for emerging scenes that have a newness about them that are kind of unique and fresh and, like, vital in that way that dubstep was, you know, in that way that grime was, in that way that two-step garage was, specialism is really, really important because it's that specialism that allows the music to unravel like and develop. Uh, so with uh, genre like dubstep, there was, you know, DJs, uh, Hatcher and Youngster, who uh, both produced occasional records but were essentially specialist DJs. Uh, and they, they put a lot of initially quite disparate music uh, into context as being one thing and it was that that really sort of honed the sound and made it what it was and it helped people identify with it I think it made the music less um, unpenetrable or something um, I don't think that I'm that kind of DJ at all because like I said I've never really been an insider to those kinds of scene workings. Um, but I, ad I really admire DJs that do that. You're talking about specialism and uh, eclecticism. Uh, I think a lot of the time, like you said, that narrative is 
a massive oversimplif oversimplification. Um, DJs like Hatcher and Youngster, like they might have done something really hyper specific, but they obviously have like a wealth of knowledge to draw on, and it's that that underlies their specialism. So I don't think anyone should be afraid to really go in on what they're doing and you know really sort of hone it and perfect it because uh, there, there is obviously an enormous amount of value in that that just kind of wild eclecticism and you know picking and choosing from a million different areas aimlessly I mean that's like a completely false binary but um, and, you know I think there's value in both specialism and eclecticism basically. Um, speaking of Hatch on Youngster I think it's interesting to listen to a set like Youngster and try and understand what you mean by a specialist DJ in the sense that there, he didn't actually play that many tracks there, but he did a lot with it, um, which I think is what I think you mean by uh, a specialism as a DJ, right? I mean, yeah, like in a sense, uh, I think with Youngster it was always more about pacing and maintaining a certain atmosphere and vibe. Like he really did take specialism to sort of extremes. Like in, in those days, he was only playing music by four or possibly five producers uh, across two-hour sets. And that, yeah, that, that was all he was interested in. Uh, he'd, I think he would really criticise people that would come in and give him music as well. And when eventually he did expand the pool of producers whose music he was playing you could really hear that he'd spent a lot of time grooming them uh, and speaking to each one of them. Uh, so he was very much involved in the music that was being made. Uh, people were making music for him and he was presenting it in his specific way. He is definitely a DJ that had a massive community of listeners around him as well. Um, it was quite an inward looking thing, but it was all the better for that. And what about that kind of uh, relationship between the listeners and the fans and the producers with with a DJ like Youngster chimes with you and what you've been doing with Hessel, for example, and your radio shows? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been doing radio for seven years now on two separate stations, initially on Sub-FM, which was an internet-based dubstep and garage and assorted UK music station uh, now on Rinse, which was pirate for 16 years, has had a community license in East London for the last three or four. Yeah, I mean, it's probably the single most valuable thing, uh, I think, in terms of me building up a career as a DJ and someone that plays in clubs. Uh, the radio shows absolutely do inform what I do in clubs because it's, I mean, it's, I think that's, it feels surprising to me, but I think it should have been obvious all along. Like when you play in clubs week in, week out, you're playing to very different crowds in very different places. And it can, I think, confuse and it can, it can make you question, I think, what it is that you're looking for in the music that you're playing to people. The responses can be so wildly different that I think it can make you question your own responses to music a little bit. Uh, with the radio, I'm playing to the same crowd of listeners more or less every week. There's obviously people driving around London listening to the show who don't write in and stuff, and that's like a, a thing that I really like about playing on Rinse. But I really like the fact as well that 
the same people right into the show week in, week out, listening to the music that I'm playing, telling me what they think of it, telling me what they like, occasionally what they don't like. But yeah, it kind of, it roots what I'm doing. I think it gives me a grounding that I wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, I think if I was just like floating around clubs every week, playing this music to people, I would probably feel a bit lost, to be honest. Yeah, yeah feeling lost and having roots and all those kind of words, it really hits home how a specialist DJ with a core group of listeners and a, a, a fan base for clubbing, the kind of people that will follow you around, um, as a DJ as opposed to a producer, it kind of it gives electronic music a home, quite literally. And that specialism about having somewhere to have your the music that you play li- uh, live is really interesting. Um, I was actually wondering, uh, on like a slight tangent to that as well, if we could play a little bit of something off your Fabric Live mix CD give, and also explain a little bit about how that came around and the, the residency. Uh, so yeah, as a label, we have a residency at the Club Fabric in London, uh, which has just celebrated 15 years of being open. They're another massive institution that somehow inexplicably decided to um, give us a slot really, really early on and have kind of built us up uh, over the past few years. As the label has grown, they've given us slightly more uh, prominent slots at the club. Uh, We now take over the main room three times a year and for the past two we've done we've we've done one of these and we will be doing very soon uh, takeovers of the entire building which are always really really fun their cd series is i think like probably one of the few remaining uh, relatively successful uh, mix cd series one of the few that hasn't decided just to go with internet podcasts uh, I'm not really sure what the significance of that is, but for me, at least, it was an opportunity to spend a really, really long time trying to hone something, uh, trying to trying to craft something, I guess. What I find really interesting about you, the idea of being a DJ's DJ and you're not producing as part of Hessel, but you are representing much more than just your skill by having a label and by being so invested. Um, with a mixed series like Fabric Live, most people who do it are producers who also happen to be DJs, so it's a way to promote their own music as well, as well as show off their skill. When you don't have your own music in there, what do you consider is your work when you're doing a mix like that? I guess just kind of the full package. Like I said, I think doing a mix CD is an opportunity for a DJ to spend some time honing something and crafting it uh, away from any of the pressures that might come from generally playing to an audience, which I think just naturally results in you making a different thing. I think the way that I've approached recording podcasts and CDs like this is like probably much closer to me getting towards the kind of specialism that we were talking about before than I have done on the radio and in clubs. Uh, I think, again, it's because it's an opportunity to try and really look closely at something and I try and achieve a particular feel. I mean, hopefully you agree that those particular tunes work really well together and lend each other something that they wouldn't have otherwise. I think that's always what I've been interested in about DJing is how certain DJs can make you feel very particular things 
that you might not have felt before about certain tunes that you might be familiar with already. DJs like Youngster definitely did that to me. And DJs like DJs like Optimo, DJs that um, sum up the kind of positive eclecticism that we were talking about before do that to me as well. That's a slightly more achievable kind of aspiration for me, I think, to aspire towards someone like Optimo or... Um, trying to think of other examples at the moment, but Actually, they're not coming to me. For the sake of context, could you explain a little bit about Optimo and 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 why you like them so much and what they mean to you? Sure. I mean, they are two DJs from Glasgow, uh, Keith and Johnny. Have been going for a long time. Put out a series of absolutely unbelievable mixed CDs. That was my first introduction to them. Uh, CDs which are quite often uh, themed around a certain sound but are sonically super disparate. They find ways of like putting together loads and loads of different kinds of music under like similar stylistic banners somehow. And it is purely in the way that they do it. Their skill as DJs, that's, you know, that, that, that's what makes it achievable for them. Um, that's something that I really admire. Yeah. Um, so in the sense of the Fabric Live Mix CD being like an example of your work, um, it also is about putting yourself out there without your own music to, to back it up, as it were. But what is interesting is when a producer and a DJ together has um, a mythological kind of feel to them. Uh, that There's this very innate combination of factors that make somebody really special. And I know that somebody that really represents that for you is a man called Spencer Kinsey. I think it would be really good to like have a little bit of a background about why that particular DJ means a lot to you. I think I brought him up in conversation and I have done interviews a few times uh, because he really represents what I was talking about before in terms of someone who managed to live within a scene in a certain context whilst also sort of picking apart the established conventions of that scene. He's actually someone that was really crucial and actually quite reassuring for me as someone that was getting into DJing house and techno. His style of mixing and the sort of adventurousness of his production as well, but mostly his style of mixing, gave me reassurance that you could play house and techno with energy, that I could uh, mix records together in a way that came naturally to me, like, you know, in a, in a kind of UK style quickly with sort of yeah I don't know quite a hands-on feel to the mixer he yeah he means a lot to me for that reason I guess it's one particular mix of his actually that sort of made me feel as though I could actually contribute something to house and techno just by DJing and um, that's quite a you know that's quite a lot for one mix to do but yeah I mean it's a long mix but uh yeah apart from your fabric life mix which I have heard I hadn't heard those two mixes before enough to, enough to remember how they run anyway and what's really struck me about playing all three of them in a sequence is that youngsters was for radio yours was recorded and released and that was sounded like very much like a club recording um and i think what all three managed to speak to is that there are different homes for electronic music there's no i don't know what you think of this maybe this could be a segue into this but when people say this is a dance music you can listen to at home, dance music for the club, dance music for the radio. I think bracketing these off as a listener isn't very helpful and it probably isn't very helpful for you as a DJ. 
Um, I don't know what you think about that and in what kind of context you think your work is most applicable to, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure I completely agree. I think boundaries are useful and kind of essential. I mean, I, I, I definitely agree in part that things like music having very, very specific purposes uh, is sort of, I mean, I, like, I wouldn't, I'd never describe a track that I play as like purely a club track or like purely a radio track. So in that sense, I agree with you. But also, I mean, music is contextual and like certain music is designed for certain contexts, certain music fun functions particularly well in certain contexts. And I think it would be slightly odd as a DJ playing music to people if you didn't take that into account. When I play really big parties, I definitely approach them differently to the thing I did last night with Nobu, which was absolutely tiny. In a context like that, uh, where you've got people staring right at you, right with you, I think what, you know, like music is so much more tangible in that kind of context. It's so much more immediate and you can get away with so much more on a big stage where particularly if you're DJing and not sticking your hand in the air and stuff. Um, what you're actually doing up there isn't particularly uh, visually obvious. A lot, get, a lot more gets lost. And I think, yeah, it would, be, it would be weird not to take that into account. That's one side of it. The other side of it is that those kinds of dynamics have led to there being quite established ways of performing from space to space, there are certain sort of tropes and conventions that you hear again and again if you go big room raving, because there is certain stuff that will trigger thousands of people to put their hands in the air and stuff. Um, that kind of thing isn't particularly uh, something that I'm interested in. I mean, I like I obviously do play into that a little bit because there is something really nice about performing to a lot of people that are sort of simultaneously like showing you that they're having a good time. But I'm quite interested in trying to achieve that sense of unity in a big space by doing something a little bit different and trying to work around those conventions a bit as well. I mean, that's why I continue to play in both kinds of space. Because one, well, it's not that one thing informs the other, because playing in big rooms doesn't inform playing in small spaces at all. But continuing to play in small spaces and being inside of the crowd as much as possible like is something that I think will stay really really important to what I do it gives you an idea of how something slightly more specialist might translate when you try and do it to more people and uh, it's also interesting when you consider how the world uh, of clubbing and the fact that I even use the phrase the world of clubbing is probably quite indicative of what I'm about to say is that in the past five five six seven years clubbing has become a recreational thing to do. It's like, it's like eating or exercising. People go clubbing on the weekends, whether they particularly like music or not. Um, it's become a hobby that's very accepted. Whereas once clubbing was uh, a mix of escapism, uh, a, a political, sexual, radical space to experience something out with your norm, now that clubbing very much is part of millions of people's norms, it is a, a billion-dollar industry uh that are entire you know islands devoted to the activity uh pretty much i'm wondering 
you, as styled as an underground DJ, as it were, you are now presented with all these different spaces to play with in what is now a billion-dollar industry. Um, how do you see how you've played over the past five years in tandem with this enormous growth of what is now clubbing culture? Uh, I mean, it's difficult to pick my own experience and my own trajectory apart from sort of general trends and stuff like that. But I do think that underground music in particular has been, it's been really successfully monetized, basically. It's much, it seems like a much bigger industry to me than it was. And I don't know if that's partly to do with me playing different music and find, finding myself involved with scenes that are more established and have more established sort of means of you know promoting itself and stuff like that um but i don't i don't i don't think that's the whole of it i mean the fest like the festival circuit is a really really good example of something that's absolutely sort of just gone completely crazy recently and there's absolutely enormous amounts of money involved in some of these bigger organizations as well i don't know if that impacts on the way that i approach DJing I mean it does mean that I've found myself playing in spaces to a lot of people the majority of whom don't know who I am so I guess that does have an impact on the way I play and the way I DJ but equally it's something that sort of gives me even more of a reason to you know try and play some of the weirder stuff as well it's because it's a platform to, to do that and I do enjoy you know, working around, you know, whatever problem I'm faced with, whether, you know, playing bizarre techno records to 2,000 people or something. It's like, it's like a fun challenge. It's really fun thinking of ways to try and get away with doing that. And then in turn, you must have uh, tried to present music in settings that are not conventional dance floor spaces. Um, it's quite interesting how this kind of circuit means that you are are regularly gigging around the world at a time when, for example, like the youngsters of, of dubstep, Just It Forward or DMZ, and then Spencer Kinsey would have been in a very particular time and place. You're playing very underground music across the world. Um, are there any like particular examples recently where you felt that it has and hasn't worked to your benefit? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there, I mean, I've, I've had my share of bad gigs as, as have most uh, DJs. There was one, uh, particularly memorable festival set when I wasn't particularly experienced with them. I, I'd been put on a stage closing after, I think, three or four French hip-hop acts. Yeah, a lot of people, about 3,000 people. I'd never seen that amount of people before in my life. Uh, I've also ne I've never seen before or since uh, as many people walk away from me as quickly either. <laughs> it, was, it was really awful. Um, I mean, like two or 300 people stuck around, but that's like, you know... 2,500 people leaving all at once. It's quite a lot. Um, it's a bit of a knock. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but, I mean, it's, you know, it's an experience. I think, uh, like, I, I sort of overcame that hurdle eventually. <laughs> I don't know. I think uh, travelling, playing in different contexts, it does um, have a really big impact on the way that you experience the music that you play. I think that was something that affected the trajectory of uh, dubstep and how it developed. The problems that it faced translating 
itself to bigger spaces from those small rooms. Yeah, that that essentially was the thing that eventually killed my interest in it because the things it had the things it had to do or the things that it ended up doing it, it you know it became it became a completely different thing um yeah i'm not sure what i'm getting at particularly sorry <laughs> i think like it's we were talking about how this music has been sort of monetized really effectively and how there are more massive spaces than ever um with which to sort of perform uh, and show your music to people. I think seeing what happened with dubstep, seeing what happened with drum bass before it, it's given me a really good idea of like what I would like to avoid. Uh, and that really informs how uh, I think we approach the music that we release on Hessel. We want to release music that functions in big spaces, but that still manages to have something different, something alien about it. So music that is linked to, I guess, like sort of big room dance floor tropes and stuff, but that somehow skirts around it, that manages to kind of work effectively and engage people, but to do it in a slightly different way. Uh, and it's really satisfying when you see a lot of people sort of react in shock to something that they weren't expecting. I think you end up getting some really interesting moments that way. People start interacting with each other differently. It's really nice when you see that happen. I mean, this is the kind of thing that I'm interested in releasing on the label. It's not, it's not that we're being uh, awkward for the sake of it or that we're taking ourselves away from established dance floor tropes. That's not what I want to do at all. I, with the label I want to, and with my DJing too, I want to work within these conventions because they're there for a reason. They work and dance music needs to function in a space. But the label for me has always been informed by our perspective initially as being outsiders. And I still feel that way now. And I feel like that's why we're, we, you know, why we continue to be interested in releasing these records that come from a kind of outsider perspective. And yeah, that like fully informs my DJing. Well, thank you so much. For probably speaking for the longest on camera you've probably ever done. I really appreciate it. By far, yeah. Yeah, by far. Um, and thank you for, for just all your work. So, Ben uh, UFO, everybody. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you a little bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole world of other great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.